Amen. Uh, for the past uh, seven weeks or so, uh, whenever Dave says, uh, if you're able, um, when he asks us to stand for the word, um, my son will look at me and, and smile and say, you're not able. Uh, <laughs> but today, uh, since I'm going to be reading a short passage, I'll, I'll stand as well. And so if you will, please stand with me as we hear the word of the Lord read together. And I'll be reading Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 8.1. So Acts 7, 54 through 8, 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that in it uh, we find comfort, that we are challenged, that we are corrected, uh, that we find hope and peace. Lord, we ask this morning that as we consider the story of Stephen, Lord, the first martyr, uh, that you be with us, that you would help us to attend to your word, uh, that you would uh, give me clarity of mind after uh, many weeks of uh, recovery, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are ready to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, uh, we are continuing in our study of the book of Acts, and we are going to be looking at uh, the passage I just read, Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 54, through kind of a little bit of the first verse of chapter 8. And, and over the past few weeks, we have followed the story of the arrest and of the trial of Stephen. And as you remember, uh, Stephen was one of the first men chosen to serve the church as a deacon. And, and not long after he's chosen to serve as a deacon, uh, Stephen is out doing ministry. And we're told that he is performing uh, just, uh, just powerful wonders, uh, powerful signs among the people. Uh, we're told that his teaching about Jesus and about the scriptures um, is something that even the best minds can't stand against. They, they keep coming up to him trying to trip him up, uh, kind of like we saw them do with Jesus. They keep coming to Stephen trying to trip him up, trying to confound him, and they can't. And since they can't find a way to discredit Stephen in the eyes of the people, uh, they come up with a new plan. They dig up false witnesses to lie about Stephen. And this leads to his arrest, and it leads to his trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, this is his trial before you know, the council, comprised of the leading Sadducees, the Pharisees who lived in Jerusalem. And last week, Dave walked us through Stephen's response to the charges against him. And really, as you kind of walk through the beginning of chapter 7, there's nothing that Stephen says in the first, you know, verses 2 through 38 that the council would have disagreed with. He's kind of just recounting the history and the story of Israel. 
Uh, but in verse 39, that tone of the speech really changes. In verse 39, Stephen transitions from you know, kind of recounting the history of Israel to highlighting the failures of the people of Israel. And then, in verses 51 through 53, uh, Stephen moves from highlighting the past failures of Israel to highlighting the present failures of the men who currently have him on trial. You can tell Stephen's been hanging out with Peter. Uh, Stephen accuses them of resisting the Holy Spirit, just like their fathers did. And the way they've resisted the Holy Spirit is by ignoring the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. And then Stephen accuses them of breaking the law that they had received from God uh, by plotting and carrying out the murder of the Messiah when he had arrived. And, and the book of Acts has been building to this point. In, in, in Acts, in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and John are arrested. They're questioned and they're instructed to no longer teach about Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, all of the apostles are arrested they're freed by an angel, they're arrested again, and eventually they were beaten, told not to teach about Jesus, and released. But even during that trial in Acts chapter 5, Peter angers the council to the point where the council members are ready to kill the apostles. And it's only thanks to the intervention of Gamaliel that the apostles are even released. And now we have Stephen arrested and on trial. And so the tension is, is building between the followers of Jesus and the religious leaders of the Jewish community and the, the Jewish faith. And the tension is centered around the problem of Jesus. Uh, growing up as the youngest child in the home, uh, I spent most of my early life watching movies and TV shows that were chosen by someone other than myself. Uh, I'm sure that others of you here can relate uh, to that story. Well, one of the movies frequently chosen in my household by someone other than myself was The Sound of Music. And while the finer details of the plot were a little over my head as a kid, uh, one thing that really stood out in my memory is when all the nuns in the abbey kind of gathered together to voice their complaints about Maria in a song called, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? And, and in this song, these nuns sing about all of the reasons that Maria drives them crazy. Um, and they start singing about all the reasons why she's not really suited to be a nun and I'd quote some of it, but I don't want you all singing it in your heads during the sermon uh, any more than you might already be doing so. Uh, so the, the point of the song, though, is that Maria is an unsolvable problem. Uh, they've, they've tried their best, but they haven't made any progress towards actually solving the problem of Maria. And well, that's, that's what the problem of Jesus has become to the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus had become an unsolvable problem that demanded a solution. You know, in, their, in their efforts to finally solve the problem of Jesus, uh, they had plotted and they had crucified him. But his followers continued to teach and to perform indisputable miracles in his name. And, and so more and more people are placing their faith in this Jesus. So in spite of their best efforts, Jesus is still a problem. Uh, they have not figured out how to solve a problem like Jesus. And so the question in this passage is this. You know, we, we know how the religious leaders tried to solve the problem of Jesus but what are they going to do with his followers? What will they do with his followers? You know, the, the claims and the actions of Jesus during his life and, and during his ministry and the claims of those who continue to follow, uh, to follow Jesus. You know, the claims that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who made the lame walk and the blind to see, that he has ascended into heaven, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lord of all things, including them, um, that he is the only way and the only truth and the only life. You know, these claims make Jesus and his followers a problem that has to be solved, a problem that has to be addressed. And since the claims and the actions of Jesus create a problem that can't be ignored, 
uh, by the religious leaders of the first century or by our world today or by our own hearts, you know, we need to pay careful attention to the truths that we find in this passage today. Uh, so this morning, we're going to walk through this passage together, and then we're going to spend just a few minutes uh, looking at three important truths that we find in our text. So that's kind of the plan for this morning. And, and as our passage begins, uh, we find the Sanhedrin responding to the conclusion of Stephen's speech uh, just about how you would expect them to, if you remember the conclusion of Stephen's speech. So I'm going to read verse 54 again for us. He says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. You know, it, it's hard for us to really picture this moment uh, that, that's being described for us in the book of Acts. You know, this court was made up of the most well-respected men of their day. Uh, these were descendants of Aaron. These were men uh, renowned for their exactness and following the law. These were the teachers of the city of Jerusalem. You know, they were the elders of this city. And when Stephen accuses them of resisting the Holy Spirit by refusing to listen to the words of the prophets about the Messiah, and when Stephen accuses them of breaking the law of God by murdering Jesus, they absolutely lose it. Uh, echoing the language you find in Acts chapter 5, following Peter's speech, right? the council is once again cut to the quick, um, or sawn in two is another way you could put it. Uh, they're cut to the quick by these words. Uh, these words that Stephen has said penetrate their hearts, but the result is not repentance. Instead, their hearts erupt with murderous anger. And so you just have this room full of these dignified elders of Jerusalem who are so angry that they're gnashing their teeth. Uh, so that they're grinding their teeth together, which is something Dennis would tell you not to do. Uh, but this was a way that we see in the Bible that intense anger is often expressed. This idea of grinding your teeth together because you're so angry. Uh, these were the elders of Israel. These are direct descendants of people that Stephen mentioned in his uh, speech and his sermon. These are men who serve in the temple, and these are the men who teach in the synagogues. And Stephen tells them that they are guilty of resisting the Holy Spirit, refusing to listen to the Holy Spirit, and of murdering the righteous one. Uh, you know, Stephen, it's kind of, you know, we know how the courts work, right? The ac accusations are made. He gets up to defend himself. Stephen was supposed uh, to speak in his own defense, and instead he accuses his accusers, and they respond in anger. And Stephen doesn't stop there. I'm going to read verses 55 through 56. Uh, 55 through 56 says, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And I love how verse 55 begins by telling us that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this was a requirement. If you remember when they were choosing deacons, this was a requirement for the men called to serve as deacons in the church. But not only that, it stands in direct contrast to the religious leaders of Israel who are guilty of resisting the Holy Spirit. Um, the, these leaders are resisting the Holy Spirit, and here's a man full of the Holy Spirit who's speaking to them. And so Stephen gazes intently into heaven, much like the followers of Jesus did on the day when Jesus ascended. But Stephen doesn't see Jesus returning. Instead, he sees the glory of God, and he sees the ascended Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen may not have any advocates among the members of the Sanhedrin, but he has one in heaven. That's what he sees. You know, in this intense moment, as the council grinds their teeth in fury, the Holy Spirit allows Stephen to view his Lord in heaven in the place of authority and honor, exactly where Jesus said he would be. And as, as one commentator explains it, he says, uh, Jesus, condemned and, uh, Jesus condemned and executed by this council now stands in vindication of Stephen, and one day he'll stand in judgment of this council. And so Stephen says to the council, 
Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit allows him to see Jesus in the heavens. And then Stephen tells him what he sees. And Stephen calling Jesus the Son of Man in this verse is significant. This is one of the few times that it's used outside the Gospels. And this is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. You know, it's, a, it's a reference uh, to the coming Messiah from the book of Daniel. And the description... And it's also the description that Jesus gives of himself when he's on trial before the Sanhedrin. And I want to read that for us because Stephen is, is intentionally alluding to this, this passage. This is from, I'm going to read uh, Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 66 through 69. Luke uh, 22, 66 through 69. It says this, uh, When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying... If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That was Jesus' response uh, when he was on trial uh, before this same council. And he used this title, the Son of Man, to describe himself. When Jesus tells them this, um, they accuse him of blasphemy, right? When he, when he says these words, they accuse him of blasphemy and they kill him. And now Stephen is shown a vision of, vision of Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, exactly where he said he would be. He's surrounded by the glory of God. He's in the position of power and authority that no council can overthrow. And so Peter proclaimed this to them while on trial in Acts chapter 5. And now Stephen proclaims this to, the, to many of the same men who had heard these words from the mouth of Jesus. And these are the men who thought they had solved the problem of Jesus when they had him crucified. But here, here they are presented with Jesus, not dead and crucified, but ruling and reigning in heaven in a role reserved for God. And it's at this point, this ceases to be a trial. It becomes a mob. I'm going to read verses 57 through 58 again for us. Say this. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You know, what a scene, again, from these dignified men. Uh, believing that Stephen has uttered blasphemy, um, an offense against God, they, um, to place Jesus on the right hand of God, uh, they respond according to the Old Testament procedure for blasphemy. So they cry out so that they can't hear him speak. Uh, they cover their ears so that they cannot hear his blasphemous words. Uh, it's kind of comically like you might see a child, right, going la, 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 you know. Uh, they're, they're crying out so they can't hear the blasphemy. They're covering their ears so they can't hear the blasphemous words. And they rush forward and they grab him. And, and, and no verdict is given. There's no deliberation. There's no appeal to Rome for permission to execute Stephen like was required in that time. You know, the, the tension between the followers of Jesus and the religious leaders um, that's been building throughout the book of Acts has kind of erupted into a mob. And this council had resisted the Holy Spirit, right? And that's what Stephen says. They had resisted the Holy Spirit, ignoring the teachings of the prophets regarding the Messiah. Uh, they had rejected and murdered the Messiah for blasphemy because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And now um, they're going to follow the Old Testament instructions found in Luke, uh, Leviticus 24 and in Deuteronomy 17 for dealing with blasphemy in their midst. And they're going to take Stephen outside the city and they're going to stone him. And so they take Stephen outside of this town and they follow the Old Testament and having the witnesses against Stephen throw the first stones. Even though in Acts chapter 6, we're told that these are false witnesses put forward by those who couldn't stand against Stephen's wisdom. And so these false witnesses take off their robes um, so their arms are more free to throw stones. 
They lay them at the feet of Saul, who is a young disciple of Gamaliel. And so Stephen is right. Uh, these men are committed to resisting the Holy Spirit. You know, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, just spoke to them, and they covered their ears, and they yelled, and they grabbed him, right? Uh, they continue to break the law of God in their passion for keeping it. Uh, as they have as these false witnesses follow the exact rules for how to stone somebody, uh, but they're false witnesses. And in the last two verses of this chapter, Stephen follows his Lord into death. And I'm going to read those for us. <clears throat> verses 59 and 60. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. These verses tell us that they went on stoning Stephen. And, and the reason it says that is stoning someone was a time-consuming and physically demanding manner of capital punishment. And because of this, uh, we're able to hear some of the last words that Stephen says. And as we hear his words, we're reminded of the last words of Jesus on the cross. Uh, like Jesus, Stephen calls out. He commits his spirit to the Lord. And like Jesus, Stephen asks that those involved with his death be forgiven. Um, these words are very similar to the words of Jesus on the cross. However, uh, there's a significant difference. Uh, when Jesus commits his spirit um, to God on the cross, he, he's speaking to the Father. When Jesus cries out that these people be forgiven, he's speaking to the Father. When with his last words, Stephen doesn't pray to God the Father. Instead, he addresses his prayers to God the Son. Uh, with these words, Stephen affirms the divinity of Jesus. And this is what separates the followers of Jesus and the Jewish com community, the question of who is Jesus. Stephen commits his soul to Jesus. And then we're told that Stephen falls asleep, which is a, a phrase we encounter in the Old and the New Testament. Uh, it communicates to us that Stephen has died. And I'm going to read just the very beginning of chapter 8, verse 1 for us. It says... Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. You know, in Acts 5, uh, in, that, in that trial, when the apostles were on trial, um, the council becomes enraged, much like they did this time. But that time, uh, Gamaliel, uh, one of the Pharisees, stands up and he calms the Sanhedrin and he urges patience. You know, in our passage today, uh, we don't hear from Gamaliel. Instead, we're, we're told that his student Saul is in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And this this marks a change. It uh, marks a change in how the Jewish leaders and, and really how the world will treat the followers of Jesus from then on. Uh, the answer to the question, who is Jesus, has divided this new community from the old. And in the end, they attempt to solve the problem of Jesus' followers uh, the same way that they attempted to solve the problem of Jesus. And as we continue to study the book of Acts, we're going to see how that plays out more and more. Uh, but this morning, this morning before we go, we're going to take just a few minutes uh, we're going to look at three important truths we find in this passage today. And, and the first important truth we find in our passage today is this. Uh, Jesus is still a problem for our world. Uh, Jesus is still a problem for our world. You know, the, the claims and the actions of Jesus during his life and during his ministry and, and the claims of those who continue to follow him uh, remain a problem for our world. And when I say our world, I'm thinking here of our, you know, the spiritual and uh, physical kind of rulers of this world. Uh, Jesus wasn't a problem because he, he fed the hungry or because he healed the sick. Uh, it wasn't a problem because he healed the lame or, or because he was a good teacher. The religious leaders of his day and the leaders today would, are willing to accept those things. Jesus was a problem uh, because he calmed seas with a word, uh, because he cast out demons, because he forgave sins, uh, because he raised the dead, because he spoke with authority, because he called himself the son of man and was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father in power and authority. 
Now, Jesus was a problem for the religious leaders of his day because he was doing and saying things that only God is allowed to do and say. And he's still a problem for our world for those same reasons. You know, if Jesus is God, then he has authority over this world. He has authority over the people in it. And that's bad news for those of us who want to be in charge of ourselves and for those who want to be in charge of others. You know, this world is not interested in submitting to a higher authority, especially not to one who places moral limits on their behavior. And so this desire to rule ourselves without answering to anyone else uh, means that the claims of Jesus and his followers are still a problem to be solved. And so you, you can see how the world tries to solve this problem. Some, some reject Jesus outright, uh, refusing to believe or even to engage with his claims. Uh, others attempt to make peace with Jesus by picking and choosing which parts of his teaching and which parts of Jesus uh, they want, uh, allowing themselves to claim that Jesus was a good man and a good teacher while rejecting his claims to be the only way and the only truth and the only life, uh, while rejecting his divine claims on themselves. And yet others move beyond rejecting Jesus or trying to make peace with him, um, and they move directly to opposing Jesus and his followers. And we saw that in our passage today. Uh, so we, and we see throughout the history of the church, uh, people rising up to oppose Jesus and his followers. And we see in places throughout, throughout our own world today, uh, where God's people face the threat of persecution and death every time they gather. And so the first important truth that we find in our passage today is that Jesus is still a problem for our world. He's still a problem for our world. Uh, the second important truth we find in our passage today is this. Uh, Jesus is still a problem for us. Uh, he's still a problem for us. It's, it's not just the world who has to answer the question, who is Jesus? Uh, we have to answer that question as well. Uh, when our hearts are confronted with the truths of Scripture, when our hearts are confronted with the truths of the gospel, what will we do with Jesus? Will we, loving our own self-rule, will we reject him and reject his claims on us? Will we reject Jesus and rule ourselves? Uh, disliking his teachings, rejecting his rule, will we join those who oppose Jesus and his followers, whether uh, through arguments or even through violence? Will we try to work out a compromise with Jesus where we take bits and pieces of him, uh, the, the bits and pieces of his teaching that we like and that kind of fit our beliefs, and then we kind of reject the rest of him? We're going to try to make peace with Jesus and just take parts of him. And uh, this is what Puritans call taking Jesus on the halves. Uh, I've been uh, reading and watching a lot of the uh, All Creatures series, which is very, very British, as they talk about doing things on the halves. Uh, and and this, this is a great quote from a Puritan that explains what, kind of what that means, what it means to take Jesus on the halves, but also why it's so dangerous, why we have to be careful to take the whole Jesus. Um, it says, The sincere convert accepts a complete Christ. He loves not only the reward, but the labor. He seeks not only the benefits, but the burden of Christ. He takes up the commands, yes, even the cross of Christ. The unsound convert takes Christ by the halves. He is all for salvation, but not sanctification. He is all for the privileges, but neglects the person of Christ. He divides the offices and benefits of Christ. They divide what God has joined, king and priest. They desire salvation from suffering, but do not desire to be saved from sinning. They would, not be, they would be saved, but keep their lust. They are content to destroy some sins, but leave others. Oh, be infinitely careful here. Your soul depends upon it. The sound convert takes a whole Christ without exceptions, without limitations, without reserve. He is willing to have Christ upon any terms. He is willing to have the dominion of Christ as well as deliverance. He says with Paul, Lord, what will you have me do? Anything, Lord. That's a quote from a Puritan Thomas about why, what it means to 
or why we can't just bargain with Jesus and take the parts that we want. We have to take the whole Christ, right? And when, when our hearts are confronted with the truths of Scripture, when we're confronted with the truths of the gospel, we have to answer the question, who is Jesus? And so the second important truth we find in our passage today is that Jesus is still a problem for us. It's a problem for us that needs to be answered. And then the third important truth we find in our passage today is that the world is never a problem for Jesus. The world is never a problem for Jesus. You know, it would be easy to read this passage and to only see the death of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. Um, it would be easy to read the passage and only see a new threat uh, that Saul and the religious leaders are providing to this community of believers. It would be easy to read this passage and to only be reminded of those who are suffering even now for their faithfulness to their Lord. And all of those things are absolutely in this passage and they're true. But if this is all that we see this morning, then we miss an incredible truth that can bring us hope on our darkest days. And yes, uh, yes, Jesus and his followers are a problem for the world, but the world has never posed a problem for Jesus. You know, in the moments leading up to his death, the Holy Spirit revealed to Stephen that his ascended Lord is right where he told us he would be. And, and listen to how Douglas Kelly explains the significance of serving uh, an ascended Savior. If you think back to the beginning of Acts, right? Uh, the followers of Christ watch Jesus ascend into the heavens, um, and they're waiting for him to return. They tell him, stop staring into the clouds. You have work to do, right? Uh, but Jesus is right where they say he is, and we serve an ascended king. And so this is a quote from Douglas Kelly, one of my professors, where he talks about why it matters that we serve an ascended Savior. He says, Our time on earth, though of intense and lasting significance, is very short. Our experience above will be of endless duration. One is a preparation for the other. To which of the two should we give the most attention? This present world, though a wonderful gift of creation in and of itself, is fallen and filled with struggle and difficulties. The ascension calls us not to define our attitudes by the challenging and at times discouraging circumstances here below, but to lift our eyes to the hills where our ascended Lord is orchestrating all that happens in the earthly experience of his people for his glory and for our not yet seen benefit. You know, this, this world is never a problem for Jesus because he is exactly who he says he is. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, who's ascended into heaven, and he's right where he said he would be. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, but also ruling and reigning. And so this morning, we can take heart in the truth that we serve a risen Lord, uh, who even now is at the right hand of the Father, who is interceding for us. He's ruling and reigning over all things, and he's ruling and reigning over all things, including the circumstances in our lives, um, even when they are for our not-yet-seen benefit. And his power and his authority and his love for his people uh, cannot be overcome. It cannot be overthrown by the powers and authorities of this world or by the suffering we experience as part of life in this fallen world. 